Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 33, please. And we'll stand for the reading of God's word. 2 Chronicles chapter 3. <clears throat> a few things before I read the passage. Before, um, Let me remind you of who Manasseh was, King Manasseh, and where he falls into the history of the kings of Israel and Judah. When Manasseh was king, Israel had already been exiled. Okay, Manasseh comes near the end of Judah's existence. Actually, after his reign, Judah is only around another 50 years or so. His father was Hezekiah, who, remember, was a great king who reformed Judah, yet he ended poorly, right? Showing his treasure to the Babylonian officials and caring little for the suffering of his sons. Very interesting that Hezekiah was Manasseh's father, and Hezekiah was the one who had little concern for his sons. Manasseh became king of Judah when he was 12, Twelve years old, he reigned for 55 years. That's longer than any other king. Following Manasseh, there were only a handful of kings that followed in Judah. Amon, Josiah, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, and finally Zedekiah. Those were the only kings that remained. Then the exile in Babylon begins. So let's read 2 Chronicles 33. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had broken down. He also erected altars for the Baals and made Asherim and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord of which the Lord had said my name shall be in Jerusalem forever. For he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts in the house of the Lord. He made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. And he practiced witchcraft, used divination, practiced sorcery, and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Then he put the carved image of the idol which he had made in the house of the Lord, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, in, his, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers, if only they will observe to do all that I have commanded them according to all the law, the statutes, and the ordinances given through Moses. Thus Manasseh misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them, and they captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. When he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, He, God, was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Now after this, he built the outer wall of the city of David on the west side of Gihon. 
in the valley, even to the entrance of the fish gate, and he encircled the offal with it and made it very high. Then he put an army commander in all the fortified cities of Judah. He also removed the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord, as well as all the altars which he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside the city. He set up the altar of the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it. And he ordered Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed in the high places, although only to the Lord their God. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, even his prayer to his God, and the words of the seers whom spoke, who spoke to him in the name of the Lord God of Israel, behold, they are among the records of the kings of Israel. His prayer also and how God was entreated by him and all his sin, his unfaithfulness and the sites on which he built high places and erected the ashram and the carved images before he humbled himself. Behold, they are written in the records of the Hosei. So Manasseh slept with his fathers and they buried him in his own house. And Ammon, his son, became king in his place. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated, please. So I have eight points, eight points that follow from this passage. Eight points that I think are important, eight points that I hope will lead to um, reflection, will lead to self-examination, particularly from this passage. The first is this, and it's the most obvious, Manasseh's sins were great. They were great. They were greater than any king who reigned on the throne of Israel or Judah. This was as bad as the king's God. Here's the list. He lived and worshipped as the pagan nations did around him. As if that wasn't enough, there are other things. He rebuilt the high places that his own father had torn down. Right? There's, those, those construction sites must have been a mess because they were torn down and erected and torn down and erected and then erected some more and then torn down. Well, he rebuilds those high places. So in addition to the, this forbidden worship, he had no respect for his father's work of reform, right? So in building those, he's sort of snubbing his father, the king. He built altars to other gods, to the Baals and to the Asherim. He worshipped the host of heaven, right? What's the host of heaven? The stars. He worshipped the stars. He stood out in the open field and bowed down to the stars and contemplated their glory. No king had done that before his reign. He built altars, but not just anywhere. He built altars within the temple. Within the temple courts, altars to the host of heaven. So he, he built altars to the stars within, within the temple in the two courts, the outer courts and the court of the priests. Like King Ahaz before him, he murdered some of his sons. He made them pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, which apparently was set up to do such abomination as we read that Josiah destroyed it, Josiah later, the grandson of Manasseh, Josiah destroyed it because it was used for this reason. 2 Kings 23.10, he also defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or daughter pass through the fire for Molech. Manasseh practiced witchcraft. 
He used divination. He practiced sorcery. He dealt with mediums and spiritists. In the parallel passage about Manasseh in Kings, we read that he filled the streets of Jerusalem with blood. And not just any blood, the blood of the innocent, it says. He filled the streets of Jerusalem with the blood of the innocent. He did not practice justice. It says he shed very much innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. Here in our passage, we have a break in the list at verse 6. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking God to anger. Yet it then moves on to another greater sin, and this break in the text serves to amplify that, right? He did evil, and then it goes to this other sin. He puts a carved image of the idol, the Asherah, which he had made in the house of God. In the house of God, in the holy place of the temple. Notice the emphasis in the following verses. He put an abomination in the house of God, the very place where God had said that his name would be forever if they observed his laws. Right? Each time it mentions the temple, it says, that was the place where my name was supposed to be. And here's Manasseh putting an idol to a false god in that place. Then the summary in verse 9. Thus Manasseh misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. It is said of other, king, of other kings of Israel that they practiced some of the abominations of the nations that surrounded them and the nations that possessed the land before Israel. But nothing is said as strongly as this. He did more evil than those nations. He took it a step beyond the pagans. In his paganism. Manasseh was as bad as it got. He was in fact one of the wickedest, wickedest men in world history. Right? But there is one more sin listed here in verse 10. He and his people did not listen to the Lord. They did not listen to the Lord. They did not listen to the Lord who is gracious enough to speak to them through his prophets. Right? We do not see this particular sin often. Elsewhere in scripture God says he will not listen to his rebellious people when they pray. They will speak and he will not hear. But here in this passage God is speaking and the people won't listen. What were the prophets saying? Well, it tells us in 2 Kings 21, we read this. Now the Lord spoke through his servants, the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, having done wickedly more than all the Amorites. Remember, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Remember that statement? That that's, they had to wait to take the land until the Amorites had filled up their sin. And here now it's being brought up that he's done more than the Amorites which is what allowed them to come in. It's amazing, right? So having done more wickedly than all the Amorites did who were before him and has also made Judah sin with his idols, therefore thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing such calamity on Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish. 
wiping it and turning it upside down. I will abandon the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies and they will become as plunder and spoil to all their enemies because they have done evil in my sight and have been provoking me to anger since the day their fathers came from Egypt even to this day. The result of Manasseh's sins we read about back in our passage, verse 11. Assyria rises up and Manasseh is hauled off with hooks in his nose. He's bound in bronze chains and he's taken away to Babylon. Where I'm sure he's given all the comforts of the world. Yet, yet, quickly after he's taken into Babylon, we see God's plan working out differently than Perhaps we in our hard-heartedness would make it work out. We in our pride would like to see Manasseh crushed. Manasseh repents. Manasseh repents after the affliction, after the Lord's afflictions, after this discipline that comes to him. Manasseh's repentance consists of two parts in my mind. He's first converted, right? And then he is, there's, there's reversion. Right? Or revision. When God had driven him down and humiliated him, Manasseh cried out to the Lord in prayer. When he was in distress, it says in verse 12, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. When he prayed to him, God was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him to Jerusalem to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew what? Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. That Yahweh was God. Do you have sins? Do you have sins that are burdening you? Has God disciplined you for them and yet you still haven't confessed them before him? Don't you think you should entreat this gracious God who would would even forgive Manasseh? Don't you think you should go to your elders and unburden yourself of the sins that you've participated in? That are on your conscience so that God might be merciful to you like he was to Manasseh? Think of the wickedness of Manasseh, broken and bleeding in a Babylon prison, weeping for God's help after committing the sins we just mentioned. Had we been with them and we had any faith in the Lord, we would have mocked him for praying. We would have mocked him. We would have said, you're forsaken of God, you wicked man. Like Job's comforters, we would have told him he was receiving his just desserts. Yet amazingly, amazingly, the Lord was moved by the prayer of this wicked man. Not only that, he rescued him out of Babylon and brought him back to Jerusalem. And the scripture says that Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Manasseh knew now that the Lord was God. Right? I take this as the conversion of Manasseh. He's converted. Manasseh had lived the life of believing that there was power in everything but the living God. The stars, the bloody, the blood of sacrifice of his sons, the fires, the idols, the, 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 the Baals, the ashram, all these were worth pursuing, but not the God who had created heaven and earth. Now, as the Thessalonians are described in Paul's letter, he turned to God from idols to serve a living God. 
Had the description of Manasseh's reign stopped there, I might have had questions about whether or not this was genuine repentance. Right? It'd just be so quick. He, he prayed and God heard. And we'd be like, well, he knew that the Lord was God. How deep did that go? <coughs> I might have had questions about whether or not this was genuine repentance. But not only is he converted, but we see that he begins the process of reversion in the kingdom. He builds up the broken down walls of Jerusalem. He cares. He starts caring for the people. Right? He removes the idols and the altars he had put in the house of the Lord. He sets up altars and offers the sacrifices that God actually had instituted. And he orders the people. He orders all the people to serve the Lord God of Israel. Yes, but the people still sacrificed on the high places. But even at those high places, there was reform. Right? As verse 17 says, they sacrificed only to the Lord their God. Manasseh. Wicked Manasseh shows the fruit of repentance. He shows that he has been converted by the fruit of repentance and change. He confesses Yahweh as God and begins to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Third, if Manasseh is shown the grace of God through his repentance, you know how I'm going to end that, right? If Manasseh is shown the grace of God through his repentance, no one is beyond God's mercy. Humble yourself before the Lord. Think for but a moment about the heinousness of his sin and think about how it seems God would have stopped his ears to that man Manasseh. God was gracious to him and heard his prayer. And it seems changed his heart. This was the beginning of repentance in Manasseh's life. Repentance that would continue to the end of his life if he was truly converted. If you have never repented before the Lord, I pray that God gives you this gift. Repented not just like generically, but repented for all the vile things you've done in your youth. Repented for all the vile things you did yesterday. In your thoughts, in your words, in your deeds. Pray that God gives you this gift. If you have, you will continue to repent. The man who stops repenting before the Lord is a man who has never repented in the first place. Right? As Luther said in his first of the 95 theses, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Not until we have reached our final resting place in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ will our need for repentance cease because we will continue to sin and our flesh will continue to need to be mortified. Fourth. <coughs> I get a drink of hot coffee before the fourth point. From my throat. It's been a rough week with this voice. Excuse me. The effects of Manasseh's sins are not erased. After he repents. That's the fourth point. The effects of Manasseh's sins are not erased after he repents. His sin and our sin will have lingering consequences. Right? Though we have reason to believe the repentance of Manasseh is genuine, the consequences of his sinful life have drastic effects on the future of Israel. Right? The outworking of his former sins is nothing less than the end of Judah as a nation. 
2 Kings 24, 1 through 4 says this. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. The Lord sent against him bands of Chaldeans, bands of Aramaeans, bands of Moabites, and bands of Ammonites. So he sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through his servant, the prophet. Surely at the command of the Lord, it came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh. The sins of the Manasseh were the reason Judah got wiped off the map. Not the sin of Hezekiah, not the sins of Josiah, not the sins of Jehoiakim. The sins of Manasseh is the reason that they are dealt with. Surely at the command of the Lord it came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood which he shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and and the Lord would not forgive. Perhaps that last phrase means that the Lord was not willing to forgive Manasseh's individual sins. But we must remember that at this point, Manasseh is long gone. And the nation, Judah, who was seduced and followed Manasseh into sin is being punished. God is dealing with the nation now, not with Manasseh. And their sin has been completed thanks to Manasseh. So there's no turning back now at this point. During the time of the exile, Jeremiah was speaking the word of the Lord. And he says this, Then the Lord said to me, Even though Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart would not be with this people. Send them away from my presence. Let them go. And it it shall be that when they say to you, Where should we go? Then you shall tell them, Thus says the Lord, Those destined for death to death, and those destined for the sword to the sword, and those destined for famine to famine. And those destined for captivity to captivity, I will appoint over them four kinds of doom, declares the Lord, the sword to slay, the dog to drag off, the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. I will make them an object of horror among all the kingdoms of the earth because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, for what he did in Jerusalem. You see, the, the prophets are even announcing the fact that Manasseh was the one who, who, who destroyed Judah. And God is angry. Nothing less than the exile, the destruction of the nation, and the people of God being dragged into bondage is attributed to the sin of Manasseh. Though he repents, the nation reaps what he sowed. How many decades had he built his kingdom of idolatry? And this work is not undone even in a moment of genuine repentance. Though Manasseh may have saved his own soul, he destroyed the nation. He destroyed the nation. Indeed, this fact that even genuine repentance doesn't remove the repercussions of the sins you are engaged in is seen in the lives of others in the Bible. Moses strikes the rock. And rebukes the people, as the scriptures put it, he didn't believe and broke faith with God. And what was his punishment? His punishment was not to see the Lord's promised land. David sins with Bathsheba and against Uriah, and the Lord takes the child. Though David has admitted his sin and pleaded with the Lord for that child, David therefore inquired of God for the child, and David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground, but the Lord took that child from him. He repents, but there are consequences. 
Yes, there are cases where after repentance, God prospers a man. Job, for example, repents before the Lord, and everything comes back to him. Peter repents of his denial of Jesus Christ, and he's called to shepherd Christ's flock. Even Manasseh in our story is rescued from the Assyrians when he humbles himself before God. But it still holds true that the godliest of saints pay dearly for their sins. Even when the sin is genuinely repented of. Sin always has consequences. Many of which are lasting and particularly disastrous for those under our authority. A pastor's scandals afflicts his flock. Right? If a pastor has scandals, then the people are hit. A father's sin hurts his sons and daughters. Right? Manasseh may have saved himself and yet fills up the sin of Judah, brings God to the end of his forbearance, even with the good reign of Josiah in between Manasseh and the end. And Josiah does so many reforms, more reforms than any of the other kings, right? Even finding the book of the law in the temple and like blowing the dust off of it. And like, we should read this, you know? There may be some stuff we should do out of this. And that's, that's not enough. Manasseh. There's no forgiving the sin of Manasseh. God said it. Five. Part of repentance is happily accepting that discipline from the Lord. We have an example of this in David's other sin. After David had taken the census, we read David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. He's given a choice of what the punishment is to be. Uh, and David says, I'm in great distress. Let us now, and he's making his choice here, let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hands of men. Part of David's repentance here is to accept the Lord's discipline. right? And both see it as perfectly justified and a better place to be than left to the devices of merciless men. David accepts, I'd rather fall into the hands of the Lord and have his discipline. Often with repentance, we may find that we are convicted to make things right, whatever the consequences may be. There was a man (coughs) in a former congregation who I just saw when I was up there, and it's always a delight to see him, but there was a man who um, knew repenting of his sins would lead to imprisonment. And he did it. He owed money. Um, he owed money. And, um, and, and he knew the consequences of it would be imprisonment. And, and he did it. And he accepted that imprisonment as discipline from the Lord for his sin. And it was wonderful. And what did he do for, for 16 months? He read the scriptures. And it was good for him. That's all he could do. You read the scriptures, right? And so th- this, is, this is something that we all must contemplate. This is something, there may be some among us who are caught up in sins that would have consequences as crimes. Well, confess and have a clear conscience before God and accept what comes as the discipline of the Lord. This is others of us who confess your sins before an employer. By policy, they must dismiss you, right? 
you know there's going to be consequences. You confess what you've done, you know you're going to get dismissed. How many, how many of us could tell stories about how repentance for specific sins forced us into a position where we knew there would be significant fallout and difficulty through our turning? As Job says, while his scoffing, you know, while his wife is scoffing at him, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Six, it's better not to sin than to sin and repent. It's an obvious one, right? I spent a lot of time thinking about that statement, and it, it, it seems obviously true. It's better not to sin than to sin and repent. Given that there are always repercussions for sin, it's clearly true. Had David not committed adultery and murdered, his household would, have been, would not have been afflicted with bad blood. Had Moses not committed the sin at Meribah, he would have seen the land that he longed to see. Certainly Judah would have been better off had Manasseh not filled Jerusalem with blood if he had been a godly king. This is certainly true. But here's a different way to put it. It is far more glorifying to God and good for you to not commit adultery than to commit adultery and repent. It's far more glorifying to God not to commit murder than it is to commit murder and repent. I mean, this is obvious, isn't it? But it's not obvious when, when cheap grace is the main theme of the church today. But we give ourselves a pass now on lesser sins, like anger. Right? You know, all those sins we really don't like and know are wrong, but attribute to our personality. Right? Yet it's far more glorifying to God for you to be gentle with your wife than it is for you to be to be angry and repent. It will glorify God more for kind words to come from your mouth than it will to curse and repent. Right? Think about it for a moment and you'll realize that you, like I, have made peace with some of your sins, with even terrible sins, through the means of continual repentance. You've made peace with them through the means of continual repentance. I can do this again because I can repent again. I can do this again because I can repent again. Right? I, well, I can't overcome my anger, but I can repent. You know, I can't overcome my addiction to pornography, but I can confess it to my accountability partner and repent week after week. Right? I, I can't overcome my flirtatiousness or my lust or my arrogance, my hatred, but I can repent when it flares up. And, you know, what if I were to say to you, conquer one sin? Does God help us to conquer sin? Can we overcome sins? Can we put to death the deeds of the flesh? Right? And, and immediately you're, you're, you're thinking, I mean, you're nodding your heads yes to encourage me in what I'm saying, but you're thinking inside, that's not possible. Especially with that first sin, that, that sin that pops into your head right now. The one you love. The one you just don't want to give up. Well, really, what I've been describing here uh, isn't really repentance at all. If repentance involves a turning from sin, not just remorse, not just confession, then what I've described is not repentance, right? I realize that I've made peace with a few of my sins and don't believe that I can overcome them. But we think like this, I can repent of them when I commit them again and again. In other words, repentance or so-called repentance becomes an excuse for me not rooting out sin. So-called repentance becomes a sanctuary for my sin. 
Unless this type of repentance looks fairly good, I mean, usually it looks fairly good. It's apologies and expressing that you've been convicted about your sins. and It's asking for forgiveness. It's in praying together with the brother you've offended or your wife or your husband. It's mentioning that this particular sin, is, you know, it's, it's mentioning it in small groups and prayer meetings. And yet there's really no desire for you to give it up. There's no hatred for it. There's no disgust at yourself. There's no shame. There's no shame. There's, there's no shame even though you're a dog returning to your vomit. And that's disgusting. There's even blindness to the consequences of it. Your kids are out of control. Your wife dislikes you. Your, kid, your children think you're a hypocrite. Your business is failing. Your finances are in shambles. But you continue to pursue that one thing. Why have we made peace with our sins, brothers and sisters, when we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us? Right? When we have everything we need to be godly, when we have the power of God dwelling within us, we can repent. We can repent. We can. All of us here can name sins that the Lord has completely delivered us from. Right? Why are these other sins I've lived with for the... The 20 years I've been a Christian beyond the power of God to remove from me. Paul put it like this. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh. Oh, we hate this verse. Because we all feel like we're in obligation to the flesh. Defeated, 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 defeated. You just go from one defeat to the next defeat in your lives, right? But if the Holy Spirit is in you, Paul says, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Again, repentance is what you must do if you sin, but it is not what you should prefer. What you should prefer is actual holiness. I've known men that I would characterize as having very tender consciences, very tender, continually grieving over their sins, seemingly to continually repent, yet never leaving the sin behind to conquer the others. Yet in a certain way, these men are seen as quite spiritual, even spiritual giants, because they were always confessing their sins, which some of us won't do. Right? Well, it would have been better for King David and would have glorified God if David had been like Joseph with Potiphar's wife, turning away at the sight of Bathsheba's body. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that it is possible to get to a point where you stop repenting. I've already said that. Like I said before, the man who stops repenting is the man who never really repented in the first place. We must continually do so, and when we do so, as we will, it glorifies God to repent. But it is still better, far better, to keep yourself from sin. Don't find sanctuary for your sin in so-called repentance. This is common in my life. Repentance leads to change. Right? It leads to the tearing down of high places and removing of idols. Repentance, this gift of God, this work of God in us, leads to patience and gentleness and fidelity and love and forgiveness and courage and sexual purity and kindness and, 
and patience and holiness. And we pray along with Augustine, give what you command and command what you will. Seven. (coughs) Almost there. Before my nose explodes. Seven. Repentance will be a continual part of your life. For all sinners, the church is a hospital for sinners. Right? We will always have reason to repent. To hit this point home, I'm going to borrow from John Calvin. Calvin wrote, so long as we dwell in the prison of the body. That's a great way to put it, right? The prison of the body. We must, con- and that's, that's because it's, it's sinful, right? The sinful flesh. As long as we dwell in the prison of the body, we must constantly struggle with the vices of our corrupt nature and so with our natural disposition. Plato sometimes says that the life of the philosopher is to meditate on death. More truly, may we say that the life of a Christian man is constant study and exercise in killing the flesh until it is certainly slain and the Spirit of God obtains dominion in us. Wherefore, he seems to have to me, to have made most progress, who has learned to be most dissatisfied with himself. He does not, however, remain in the miry clay without going forward, right? But rather hastens and sighs after God that ingrafted both into the death and the life of Christ, he may constantly meditate on repentance. The strange thing is this, as we grow in holiness, we are more able to see the the, the sins that afflict us, right? As Calvin says, yes, there should be progress and actual growth and holiness, so the work of repentance will be continual, but with an ever-sharpening point. Ever-sharpening, ever-deepening. Repentance is a glory. A church characterized by repentance will be a God-glorifying church. Eight, genuine repentance grows from our love to God. Thomas Watson from the Doctrine of Repentance puts it this way. A man may restrain the acts of sin. (coughs) A man may restrain the acts of sin, yet not turn from sin in a right manner. Acts of sin may be restrained out of fear or design, but a true penitent turns from sin out of a religious principle, namely love to God. Even if sin did not bear such fruit, if death did not grow on this tree... A gracious soul would forsake it out of love to God. This is the most kindly turning from sin. When things are frozen and congealed, the best way to separate them is by fire. When men and their sins are congealed together, the best way to separate them is by the fire of love. Three men asking one another what made them leave sin. One says, I think of the joys of heaven. Another, I think of the torments of hell. But the third, I think of the love of God, and that makes me forsake it. How shall I offend the God of love? Love for God is the reason David in his psalm of repentance, Psalm 51, says, Against you and you only have I sinned. Certainly David had sinned against Bathsheba, against the nation, against Uriah, but he describes his sin as against God alone. Right? He realized the utter offense his sin was against the God who had rescued him and set him in a high place. He understood that the father who loved him, who supplied him with protection again and again, was grieved by his sin. He understood that the sins he committed were an offense to the holy God and a mockery to the salvation that he provided. He understood that to sin was to reject the God who loved him and the God who is love. 
We don't repent because we want to avoid God's discipline, though he may relent in his mercy. We don't repent because we want to restore temporal blessings that we've lost, though God may do so. We don't repent because we want peace with our spouse or our child, though that is often the outcome. We repent because we love God. We repent because we love God, and and those we truly love, we desire to be like. Right? If love for God and desire for holiness do not capture your heart, you'll never repent. You just won't repent. Like Paul writes in 2 Timothy, you will always be learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so let's ask the Lord to grant us repentance so that we may lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And so that we may walk in newness of life, enjoying the Lord even until he comes and our faith is made sight. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would show us yourself. That we, your humble servants, would rejoice in your love. And knowing of your love, that it would lead us to grieve when we sin and to pursue repentance. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.